All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 214 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and in terrifying news, I now have no free weekends until the end of October. That makes me feel a bit tearful. It makes me feel a little bit pukey. They're packed with really exciting and excellent things, but I'm like, when do I get to just sit on my sofa or, like, clean my house? Yeah, I think that's horrific. (laughs) Thank you. I knew you'd understand. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I finally finished painting my lounge. Like three and a half months after I started doing it. And it's blue now, isn't it? I mean, I have an excuse. I went on holiday and then I was sick and then there was a fucking heat wave. It was quite hot yesterday, so it did dry quickly. Oh, that's good. So if you were going to choose a day to watch paint dry, yesterday (laughs) would have been it. Although I realise this whole conversation has largely been like watching paint dry anyway. (laughs) Well, wait for it because it's about to get very exciting in here, guys. (laughs) I'm Jen Offord, and I've bought a sewing machine. Get ready. Yeah, I know. Get ready for an Instagram full of very, very questionable garments. Cannot wait. I'm excited for your crotchless design range. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking more with reference to my GCSE textiles project, which is a very, very misshapen child and athletic waistcoat. um... (laughs) A waistcoat. (laughs) Amazing. That was the. It wasn't my choice. That was the brief. The brief was you had to make a waistcoat for a specific person for a specific occasion, and basically everyone in the class because it is quite hard. 
I mean, certainly it was in like 1998. It's quite hard to be like, well, who would wear a waistcoat? (laughs) Who who would want a waistcoat for a specific occasion? So everyone was just like, oh, I'll make one for John Virgo. Hang on, wasn't everyone wearing a waistcoat in the 1990s? I had going out waistcoats. (laughs) I had... (laughs) I had a going out waistcoat in the early 2000s when they came back into fashion briefly. I think I've still got it, actually. I had a fucking lovely pinstripe waistcoat. My one is a sort of like green... It doesn't sound nice, to be fair. A sort of green pinstripe waistcoat. I'll send you a picture, guys. I think uh, we should try and make waistcoats come back. I think people who love standard issue have just been gasping for some fashion (laughs) content. (laughs) Waistcoats. Well, I volunteer to wear the Charlton Athletic weight. No, I don't. I don't. Once when I did sewing at school, and I was really little, and um, we had to sew, like, quite big shapes onto this bit of fabric. I think it was basically a shut-up exercise. And we were doing it, and I had a, I mean, I had a dress on, so I was, what, seven, I would say. And when the teacher came to take it away, I had sewed through the thing and like basically just sewed it to the front of my dress <laughs> and I didn't get to do break time because they had to unpick me oh it was like statement clothing yeah Hannah that's amazing <laughs> coming up I talked to artist Dewinda Bansal about her exhibition Jambo Cinema which opens tomorrow as part of Birmingham Festival 2022 Oh, sort of related to that, weirdly. In Jenny Off the Blocks, it's not going to sound like it, but it is. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to Amy Farrow of England's lawn bowling team ahead of the Commonwealth Games. That's the related point, the Birmingham bit. Oh, they're in Birmingham as well, right? Birmingham episode. <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, we're back in Birmingham. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> but we do find out what would happen if Blackpool and Whitby had a baby as we watch 1987's The Lost Boys. Oh, life in a northern town. <laughs> <laughs> but first, bring back Bonnie. Saw's about the good news, like, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bonnie. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are surprised to learn that meritocracy isn't unfair horseshit that simply doesn't work, because actually being working class now means owning a chemist and pretending your Mm -hmm. school wasn't very good. Cool. I don't have to pretend that my school wasn't very good. My school was not very good. (laughs) Welcome to the working class, Jen. Wicked. Great. Thanks. I am, of course, referring to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak's bold class claims in the continuing race to be TC in the Tory party. Top cunt. They're ineffectual. (laughs) Top cunt. Not intellectual. They're the most tip top. Top cunt. And if you thought TC stood for top conservative, you're clearly new round here. Welcome. Come on in. It's so depressing, isn't it? I can't believe we're going to have one of those fucking cunts be the prime minister. I'm really trying not to. I'm I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to use it as a word about horrible men because cunts are lovely, right? And these people are not. But sometimes it's the only word that will do, right? Jen, sometimes you've got to call a cunt a cunt. Exactly. <laughs> They probably won't win the next election, though, so that is one thing to hold on to. Let's hold on to it. It's all we've got. Hope, as ever, is going to be the thing that kills us all. That's it for Chuckles for a bit, because what I'm about to talk about is pretty hard on the heart. 
There have been renewed calls for a change in the UK law around assisted dying or euthanasia, which is currently illegal. Now, this is a difficult, emotional and divisive subject, not made any easier by the fact that this fresh bout of calls comes from Graham Mansfield. Last week, Mansfield, who slit his terminally ill wife Diane's throat in what he has called both an act of love and a suicide pact, was found not guilty of murder. Mansfield told Manchester Crown Court he had agreed to end Diane's life on her request before attempting to take his own, but it had, in his words, all gone wrong. Mansfield had also written two notes, one explaining the suicide pact and another addressed to his family, neither signed by Diane. And apart from Mansfield's testimony, there is no evidence that Diane made any request for him to end her life. Three knives and a lump hammer were found near her body. It took a jury of 10 men and two women 90 minutes to find Mansfield not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter, for which he was given a two-year suspended sentence by a very sympathetic Mr Justice Goose. Personally, I don't think this is a great case upon which to hang calls for a change of UK law in regards to assisted dying. Whether it was true for Graham Mansfield, and to reiterate, the judge and jury thought no, they are the facts. It would be all too easy for mercy killing to fast become the rough sex defence for men who want rid of their poorly wives. And kids who want rid of their poorly parents. And in fact, for the word poorly to just become another word for burdensome. Because, as we've discussed previously on the podcast, it's impossible to check whether a person consented to being killed when that person is dead. Currently, euthanasia is illegal throughout the UK and can be prosecuted as murder or manslaughter. Assisting or encouraging, that's in quote marks, another person's suicide is illegal in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, but there is no specific offence of assisting or encouraging suicide in Scotland. And it does happen. Between April the 1st, 2009 and March the 31st, 2022, there were 174 cases referred to the Crown Prosecution Service by the police that have been recorded as assisted suicide in England and Wales. And all but 26 of these were withdrawn by the police or not proceeded with by the CPS. Look, as I said at the top, assisted dying is a very emotional subject and I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it. Not least because I'm not sure how I feel about it myself. For years, I was solidly in the camp that people should be able to choose when they want to die. Not least because physician-assisted dying is legal for more than 150 million people around the world, with eligibility criteria, safeguards and regulations in place. But then I spoke to some disability activists, and one word they mentioned was an immediate red flag. Coercion. How do you ensure a decision is truly voluntary? And because standard issue runs through me like Blackpool through rock, that made me think, is there a question of gender when it comes to assisted dying? And yeah, yeah, I might as well have made that rhetorical because here are some of those gendered risks. Women tend to live longer than men, meaning we're more likely to develop diseases and disabling conditions or experience elder abuse and discrimination, both of which could motivate the desire for assisted suicide. Women have fewer economic resources when we're older, the time when decisions about assisted suicide are most likely to occur. That means that women may be more likely to request assisted suicide to spare their loved ones the burden of caring for them. Indeed, in a study of assisted suicides where the majority of cases were women, the fear of being a burden was a prominent reason for deciding for death. Oh, and guess what? Research indicates striking similarities between the broader patterns of male violence against women and at least one kind of assisted death, mercy killing. And I know, I know, I'm mad cynical, but that's just because of all the women that keep dying at the hands of men. What am I like?
Yeah, no, it is really tricky because how do you how do you ever prove it? Like as you say, you can't corroborate a story if you're dead, can you? So, and, and given that people already don't seem to fucking care how women die, the principle of it does feel difficult. Yeah, because obviously you would have, if it was a physician assisted, then there's someone else involved, you'd have paperwork, etc. And that would go a long way to saying we got consent, there was consent given. But we know so well that people can be coerced into doing all sorts of stuff. Mm. You just can't ever ensure that there was no coercion, I think. But, you know, the ability to die with dignity if you've got a disease that makes you feel like that isn't an option if you don't have assisted dying or assisted suicide euthanasia it also feels like it should be something that people can have access to Hmm. i do not know what the answers are sadly i don't think anyone does know what the answers are it goes back and forth this obviously isn't the first time there's been a call for change in the law and lots of people have fought to get it changed so far unsuccessfully well should we talk love island mix (laughs) seems a natural way forward to be honest (laughs) with you jen (laughs) Now, look, you all know I'm a self-confessed basic bitch. I do not consider myself particularly highbrow, and certainly I'm not above watching a bit of trash on TV. However, a growing sense of unease with regards to the care that reality TV shows have for their participants does rather turn me off the entire genre Mm -hmm. these days, I have to say. Concerning Love Island in particular, the death of Caroline Flack in 2020 marks the third suicide linked to the show. Am I saying Love Island is responsible for the deaths of Flack, Sophie Graydon, Mike Thalassitis? Absolutely not. Though it is hard not to look at it as a very worrying trend. Yeah, I mean, one, you'd start looking, right? And yet ITV constantly say that they you know, take great care. Anyway... This isn't the only criticism of the show. The domestic abuse charity Refuge spoke out against it again in the last couple of weeks over misogyny and casual sexism witnessed during the current series. They had, of course, made similar statements during previous series. On this occasion, it said, The double standards, gaslighting and coercive control being displayed by the men in the villa is hugely problematic. Last week it emerged that the communications regulator Ofcom had received more than 3,600 complaints predominantly about said misogynistic behaviour in a week. Wowzers. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Of those, more than 400 complaints were about an episode of the spin-off show After Sun relating to alleged slut-shaming of one of the contestants by the presenters and panel and the treatment of another during an interview. And this is the bit where the, the point about care comes into play because this guy apparently did not come across of, you know, the most sound mind at the time. He seemed very depressed, apparently very down. So ITV responded... We do not condone trolling against either our host or our islanders and any subsequent elevation of these comments, which is a really shit response to some fairly concerning accusations. That's it just says like fuck all, doesn't it? It says very well, little. Is that like uh you're being mean to our presenter? What the fuck? Like those are really serious. If if someone made those kind of accusations against me, I would want to try and exonerate myself. I would not want people to think that of me. I would want to put people straight. So to me, the fact that that's what they come up with is fucking shit, to be honest. But anyway, it is unfair of me to judge something I have only watched once in my life. But the fact that domestic abuse charities feel the need to publicly speak out about the show also seems to me to be a very worrying trend. Exactly that. 
I've read around it. I've never watched Love Island. It's not my cup of tea, really, the reality TV series. Mm. Yeah. I'm not I'm not really into them and never have been, but it's just, they're quite clearly clickbait. They're clearly sensationalist. Yeah. They get edited in a way that isn't representative of people. None of what I've just said is new news since, you know, Big Brother started back in, I don't know, 1990, mm. whatever it was. Yeah. And so this hasn't changed. Why hasn't there been more of an evolution of looking after people who are taking part in these? And the stuff that you see coming out about how the young women are being treated by the young men, what example is that setting for the young men and young women watching it, for the children watching it? Yeah. There's a whole lot of stuff being presented as normal, but also as a way to get on the telly that is terrifying. Another point that I think is extremely problematic is the presentation of not just the young women, but the young men as well, but particularly the young women. They all fit like a very, very specific kind of visual aesthetic mould. Mm -hmm. The guys as well, because they're all really ripped. They've all got like, you know, six. The, the guys don't look like they ain't fucking very much either, to be fair. But the girls, like, they're pumped full of fillers. They've got loads and loads of makeup on, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, all right, I'm a bad feminist because they can do whatever the fuck they want with their faces, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want my daughter to look at that and think that that is a normal aesthetic that she needs because it's, it's literally unattainable mm -hmm. without intervention. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's not a natural look. And I don't want her to grow up thinking that that's the standard that she has to meet because that's fucking crazy I, I totally agree with you jen i totally agree with you it's so arbitrary like this definition of beauty which we're being told isn't the same anymore and you know like plus size models and it's all changing and it's like okay well you've got a prime time series yeah. that is the same as it ever was do something about it preferably yeah. if any of these concerns ring alarm bells for you listeners like vote with your eyes stop watching it yeah. I've got a mate who's like, oh, I watch it with my son and I tell them that that's bad behaviour and they shouldn't do it. I'm like, stop, yeah. just stop giving them the attention. Then it'll go away because you can't be sure your message is getting through louder than their message. Yeah, absolutely. And the final thing I would say that I find appalling because of Love Island is that you cannot buy a swimming costume or bikini that doesn't go up your ass crack anymore. And it's upsetting. It's like having some <laughs> sort of surgery by material. I don't like it. I've done, it's a long time since I tried to buy a swimming costume, to be fair. but um... Buy three and use your new sewing machine to stitch them together to make a substantial pair of pants, Jen. That's all, all I'm right, going to say. Will do, will do. <laughs> right, would you like some good news, Mick? Yes, please. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when the news is both good and sexist. You weren't expecting that, were you, listener? Whoa, she's messing with our minds. I know, I've completely... What have I completely done? I've, I've You've messed with your own mind. Stuff. <laughs> I've messed with my own mind. I can't read anymore. Anyway, so the good news is that the first ever women's health strategy has been launched in England. Whoop, 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 whoop. Health for women. Hooray. <laughs> it's about time. Uh -huh. This is a big moment. Yep. In fairness, it is. We've been waiting a long time for it. So let's look at the good bits. Yes, please. Right. Number one exists. We have chatted a lot about the health services, institutional sexism, which has led to avoidable and premature deaths of many women. Misdiagnosis and chronic pain that makes the lives of many women who suffer from things like, for example, endometriosis, a misery. 
The big headline here is that doctors will be given mandatory training to better treat female-specific medical conditions. Hooray! That's good. And it includes the menopause, which I'm not sure can be classed as a medical condition rather than just a life event. Life. (laughs) Just, Just life. So number two, more money is going to be put into a breast screening programme. £10 million to be precise. Good stuff. Number three, barriers to IVF treatment for same-sex couples will be removed. Mm -hmm. If you're a same-sex couple, you will no longer be required to pay for the six rounds of artificial insemination needed before you're allowed to access IVF on the NHS. Six. That's a lot. It is. So without, without the semen... So say you found a pal, I was going to say jizz, but it's just, you know, it's, I, I've, I've got a friend who's going through this at the moment, so we've started to talk about things very colloquially, shall we say. <laughs> um, so, say you found a pal to help you out in this respect is £800 a pop. Wowzers. So that is almost five grand before you can access IVF for free. Just want to throw it out here, though. It's not sexist because men don't get it either, but note that if you are single, you're still paying for it all yourself. We all know that single people don't deserve to have children. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, number four, specialist endometriosis services and new guidance for doctors. Hooray! Yeah, all good. Number five, a loss of pregnancy certificate for parents who lose a child before 24 weeks. Another big one here, number six, improving research. This includes more research around female-specific health conditions, encouraging publicly funded health and care research to include data on the sex breakdown of participants, a commitment to analysing already funded research to identify gaps in knowledge, promoting the inclusion of both sexes in the design of animal studies, Mm -hmm. and looking at a lack of representation of pregnant women when it comes to research. These are huge leaps forwards. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, excellent. So why are you saying it's sexist, Jen? <laughs> Let's not make perfects the enemy of good, right? Right. Wrong. Oh, okay. Yeah, wrong. I was fucking livid when I read the headlines on this. And yes, always read the article because there is good stuff to be found. But what? 52% of the population wait over 70 years of the NHS to be treated differently. And yes, we should be treated differently here because this is a place where difference really fucking matters. Agreed, yeah. There are, of course, male-specific medical conditions, but women are medicalised a whole goddamn lives from our teenage years onwards and that needs to be recognized and dealt with accordingly it should not have taken this long and i for one am fucking fuming at the notion that we should somehow be grateful for (laughs) mandatory training around women's medical conditions seriously you weren't already doing that no (laughs) and 10 million pounds 10 million to stop us dying prematurely are you sure I feel spoiled, Jen. I don't know about you, but it's like, oh, it feels a lot, right? It feels like fuck all. It's such a drop in the ocean. It's a tiny, tiny amount of money, like for for the the huge task that you look at. And when you when you talk about the numbers in terms of the money that goes into the NHS, that is fuck all, uh-huh. basically. Yeah. And you will not convince me, Zoe Williams, writing for The Guardian, or any other fucker who tries, that the health service's treatment of women is anything other than sexist because, and I paraphrase a little bit here, but the crux of Williams' argument is there are lots of female GPs. It's just, yeah, but they've been taught by the same system. When you get higher up the ranks, there's a lot less 
female workers there. The research money tends to go for male stuff. You can just look yep. at like the amount of money that is put Viagra. into erectile dysfunction, Viagra, etc., and compare that to what has previously been put into something like endometriosis or the menopause. And yeah, she can get in the sea. It's bullshit, man. It's absolute bullshit. It's just women, isn't it, Jen? Who cares? But they're Fuck starting that. to care. Let's let's end with that little positive yeah. that this is something. She's nodding, listeners. She still looks grumpy, but she's nodding. <laughs> I'll take it. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Dewinda Banzal, artist and creator of Jambo Cinema, an installation at the Mailbox Birmingham from the 28th of July, which is tomorrow. If you're listening to the podcast on the day it comes out, it goes on till August the 20th. And it's part of the Birmingham 2022 Festival. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. How's Birmingham doing in the baking summer? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly that. We're keeping ourselves hydrated and uh, lots of lemon water, actually. It's very, very, very exciting time to be there at the moment. In amongst lots of creativity and things popping up everywhere. But also to be one of the artists as part of the, the Commonwealth Games the culture programme. Is- yeah. Let's start with those words, Jambo Cinema. This is the third iteration for you. We've got new additions which we'll get to can we start with jambo cinema can you tell me what that means and how that installation started for you so jambo actually means hello in swahili how can i come up with a title which kind of represents a bit of my heritage and history which is being kenyan indian british and bringing all of those together but also it was very much initially as as a starting point a project which i thought i'm going to just create a video shop which was a recreation of my late father's video rental shop it was actually an, an electrical shop and half of it was the video shop it was all Indian films and so I thought let me just honor a bit of my Kenyan history and, and heritage and that's where Jambo comes from it's quite a nice word and it's quite uplifting. It is, it is, so. it's quite fun to say. Yeah. yeah, I like it. And also, because people don't know what it means, I think it's eye-catching enough that people go, oh, what is that? I want to know more. So, yeah, a reproduction, essentially, of your dad's VHS rental shop and also your aunt and your uncle's front room. Well, the aunt and the uncle are actually, I frame them as my, my mum and dad. So, <laughs> auntie and uncle Bansall are like mum and dad. And yes, it's the, it's the front room, it's the shop, and every single iteration that I've done, because this is actually, I think this is the fifth one now, actually, it's sort of grown as I've developed the project a bit more, but also I've taken them, the very early iteration, which was in 2016, as just a pop-up. I had a couple of hundred pounds and I borrowed things from lots of friends and family and their time and and their energy as well as my own and pushed it forward and made it happen in a weekend in a town hall in West Bromwich. And and it was just something I I felt instinctively. I had a passion to do and I wanted to do this pop-up of this living room and show people what it was like for me to grow up within in that environment of being British and having a dual heritage, really. I, I sort of look at it like that. I've got, I think I've got a really interesting mixed bag of heritage, which is British, Kenyan, Indian, Sikh, female, a second generation, mm. Asian. So all of those things together, someone would come in and experience, okay, this is what life was like, and this is how a house would have been presented for the Kenyan Indian families coming from Kenya in the 1960s, which is what my parents did. Mm. And actually, I just intended to 
do that one pop-up and get it out of my system as an artist. And that was the first time I actually made a piece of work as an artist because before that I was just producing work. And, you know, there's something very <laughs> addictive about, for me anyway, about getting the responses of audiences who get energised by something that you create. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, well, Dwinda, this is just here for a weekend, but we want it here for longer. Are you going to bring it back? What are you going to do? And so then... The journey continued and then I did another iteration in Wolverhampton uh, Art Gallery and that was a smaller piece of work as well. And as time's gone on, I've been to Barbican as part of one of their film festivals, to the New Art Exchange um, in Nottingham and then in Wolverhampton again it got represented in a different way which was taking it into a shopping centre and taking over one of their disused shopping units and building it there as part of the British Art Show 9 off-site programme which happened in Wolverhampton. And now, in Birmingham, it grows again yeah. and with an additional space of my bedroom. So we've got people walking and they see the living room of the 1980s. Then they go into the shop and then they also see my teenage bedroom full of lots of secretive things mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and interesting stories and interesting insights into what that was like. I suppose for me growing up in the late 80s and early 90s and, and what I was getting up to with my friends. Oh, I've got so many questions for you because I absolutely adore social history. I was in Dubrovnik recently. I went to the Red History Museum, which is about life in Yugoslavia under communism and they've got recreated rooms there and they're so joyful because there's just these tiny little pieces of ephemera that tell a story about the person you know that that owned it but but also I think you see things and think wow I don't know what that is I don't know what that band is I've never heard of that thing but also you see things in common that you Mm. you know that obviously everybody everybody had a yo-yo they're so interesting I'm guessing the living room, is that the, the front room? Was that the room that was for best or was that the room that was lived in or did your family not, not have that? We had the living room, which was the best room in the house. Yeah. The kids weren't allowed to go in there. Yeah, that's see, that's so interesting to me because <laughs> my grandma's had these as well. I mean, my dad's mum had died by the time I was born, but nonetheless, he, he said he, they had 13 children and so tightly packed into a space and yet there was still a room that nobody was allowed in that got used, (laughs) you know, for Christmas and when the priest came. And it's so interesting to me that that concept is is all over the UK. You know, women in the East End did it. My grandparents were Irish. They did it. My nan Mm. had a room that we went into literally on Christmas Day other than that. But also... You did it. So is that a West Midlands thing? Is that Has that come over from India? Now, my theory on this, actually, is that my parents did this to our family, extended family, and, and we, we did it to other extended family, whereby we'd go to the temple in the morning and then my father would be there speaking to family and my mom, And then they'd say, right, we're going to go to someone's house in the afternoon. And then it would be organised on the spot. Or we'd just turn up unannounced. And not everyone had a telephone, mm. so you, sometimes you would just turn up. So... It was a case of having one room that was nice and tidy and presentable for guests in case they did turn up. And I think it was one of those situations where there were unexpected guests. So all the mess would be in another room and then you'd have this special room with all of your, your best your, your best crockery, china, everything else in the cupboard, which actually would ne- never really be, never be touched. Yeah. It would never be touched. It was just nice there to look at. And then, the, you know, the sideboard and everything decorated and presented in a way which 
made you look like things were kept special for, for, for guests yeah. to arrive. Yeah, so and we had a lock as well. We had a lock above the door. We had like a, a lock that the kids, the kid children couldn't get to. <laughs> and I remember it, my, my older brother, he put them on all of the doors because my, my oldest brother is 20 years older than me. And so I was about five years old when he got married. And I remember him putting all the locks on the door so the could, kids couldn't get into some of the rooms to mess them up. <laughs> That's incredible because when I think now, because like I say, I know so many people all report that this was something that happened in their house, in their grandma's house or their mother's house. But imagine telling my nephew he couldn't go into parts of the house that he lives in. He'd just laugh in my face. You just wouldn't do it. My nan, it was like a rod of iron. It was like you did not go in there. Mm. And when we went in there, we were always worried that she'd know we'd been in there. Um, Like we'd left some evidence. (laughs) I remember that fear. That she'd know we'd opened a drawer and looked in it. Yeah. But like I say, it was just there, just in case the priest came round, to give the impression that the rest of the house was as tidy as that one room that she had. I think that's exactly what you're saying, yeah, to give the impression. Yeah, yeah. So interesting, isn't it? I'm also really interested in the the idea that because your dad, of what your dad rented, which was, you know, Bollywood-type films, in the the video rental shop, what he rented out, meant that he kind of escaped what befell loads of video shop owners which got taken over by Blockbuster essentially got closed down because he was catering to a market that Blockbuster wasn't catering to am I right am I making an assumption there no 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 not at all I think I think actually we might have I'm not sure when Blockbuster came on the on the scene but the the shop itself closed down in 89 Right. The reason why it closed down was because he passed away. Very suddenly, it was it was sort of a, a two-week diagnosis of an undiagnosed brain tumour, and then he passed on. Oh, that's terrible. It was an enormous shock to us as a family. And what that meant was the business just ceased to exist because he was the person who was the driving force and the engine mm. behind it. So really, all of the films that I've got are from that period of which... The shop was open until the period it closed, so everything still stops at 1989. And then the shop and all of the stock and the fixtures and the fittings and the items within the living room and also in the bedroom now. I'm a little bit of a hoarder, but my mum's a bigger hoarder than me, so we've kept everything that's you know we possibly could that was original and it got put into the attic and into the garage. And so that has all come out for other people to see, and actually they are fascinated by mm. it. They are so fascinated. And I think there's nothing quite like going into an environment and having a real feeling and a sense of what it was like in the environment around. It's so sensitive. The exhibition is very sensory. And, and I invite people to come in and sit down. And occasionally I give them a cup of tea and some custard creams. Oh, I mean, I'm totally in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all about doing what you actually said earlier on, which was within that living room space, there are objects within there which are curious to other cultures. Mm. And, and I love doing that. I love opening up my world for other people to come into and ask questions and get curious because I do feel that we are slightly in a, in, in a time in history where people get offended if you don't know something because, you know, oh, you should know this. But, well, why should everyone know everything about everyone else? Agreed. I do sometimes feel that asking questions is not always welcome. And, you know, you, you don't want to be some clattering fool who just comes in and says, what's that? But sometimes you just really want to know what that is. 
And if you're there to chat to people and say what it is, that's amazing, I think. Absolutely. I, I welcome that. I think we need more of that in society, actually, of just being a bit more open and being a bit more curious with questions and not shooting people down because they don't know something. How much bandwidth do we have as people? We mm. don't really have that much and we're distracted by all sorts of things, including technology and too much media consumption and everything. But they, the spaces that I create offer an opportunity for people to escape a world which is too full and too full of stimulation you know mm. it's a step back it's really it's really an opportunity just to kind of just be just be and relax and see what life was like for a very specific family my family I mean I've got very personal items in there they're my items they're pictures photographs objects certificates things like that that represent my family but they also other people come in and oh, I, ha- I had one of those, I had one of those, and this my grand had one of these. And these are people from all different types of communities and cultures. Mm. And that's what I like to do with my work. I like other people to feel that they also have a part of themselves within it. Mm. And going back to your blockbuster thing, uh, yeah, I think it was a little bit later. I think we just, just about missed it. But I, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question to ask. Supplying those films to South Asian families at the time, my dad, I've always wondered like why he did it, and then I and I did a bit of research on him, and I asked family. And when he came to this country, because he was a qualified electrician, he worked in British Steel. But then he also was able to do things like fix things and help out people at the temple, or people mm. didn't have enough money, he would go around and fix things for free and things like that. So he's a very generous man. And then somehow, I don't know how, he encountered this man who had just bought this dilapidated, Indian man who had dilapidated, had bought this dilapidated cinema and was then putting on Indian films for people to see because there wasn't the representation on television. It wasn't on radio either. There, there, was, there was a real kind of, I suppose, a longing for these families mm. who had moved here from India and Pakistan to to have a bit of their own culture and identity and their own language and to hear and see something creative. And creativity is so important for us as humans. I really believe that. And when you've left everything behind and then you come to the UK and you don't have your culture, your customs, every, everything is different. What you want is a bit of creativity to take you back into that world. Mm. And I think that's what Bollywood films at that point really provided for the newly arrived immigrant communities in, into the into Britain. Because this is also the time of the rise of Bangra music, isn't it? Which is in the 1980s, which is also yeah. a sort of a, a callback to home, but also an evolving musical form. So, so which brings me to your third room, which is your bedroom. And that's interesting because bedrooms are the most private, along with bathrooms, I would imagine, the most private room of someone's house. If you've got secrets, that's where they're hidden. In it, you see, you've also made a, a film. It's called Asians Don't Kiss, in brackets, but we know how to make babies. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that, because I found that super interesting when I was reading about it. That is a short film, and it, they are my musings about growing up in, in 1980s, early 90s, Wolverhampton, and about how uh, I never saw couples around me in my own family be affectionate with each other. And then... Uh, I would, I've always thought about this. I was like, there's never been any sort of kissing or cuddling or anything like that that was very visible for me to see. And then I remember going around to my best friend's house, Nicola Parsons, 
and seeing her parents cuddled up on the sofa. And I was horrified. <laughs> yeah. I was horrified to see that. And uh, I said, oh, we shouldn't be in here. Do look at Call the parents. police. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, oh, don't your parents do this? I said, no, they don't. And um, I found that. I found that looking back on it as an observation, and that's what I do with my work. It's always an observation of, of what I saw and experienced to be different and the same. And um, and then I also uh, was was the, the five year old. You know, my my brother, who's twenty years older than me, that got married. I witnessed his wedding and how that all happened with the arranged marriage um, kind of process, which was the most common way to get married at that point mm. that was the way to get married through an arranged marriage situation by being introduced through a matchmaker that knew both families and um and then i got looking through all of the bollywood films that were in the shop and i realized that whilst there was always a love scene there was always some drama in because bollywood films are so over the top in the 1980s um but there was always a dancing scene in the park and there was always this sort of this couple trying to get together. And whenever something would come, you know, the camera would come near them and their faces would be very close. It would sort of be like a flower that would suddenly pop up and appear. <laughs> a shaking bush to kind of, there are all these sorts of, you know, what's going, going on, into a imagine, letting your imagination take over and, you know, you can't see it, but you can imagine what's happening. Yeah. And so I found that really hilarious. And then I started, um, and I remember watching Cinema Paradiso a number of years ago and then I was sort of just thinking about the similar similarity so it's sort of it's a mix of me taking some of these vintage films and and picking out some of those clips as well as putting some archival material and my own story into it so it sort of takes people on a bit of a journey and then I suppose the daytimer aspect of it is about you know me going to a daytimer when I was 15 years old you you was you were meant to go when you were 18 and I right. was honking off school and I was going with my friends so, so daytime is just for anyone who doesn't listening who doesn't know what they are they are essentially daytime discos for people who didn't want to be out at night well didn't didn't want to be and probably couldn't weren't weren't allowed right. to be more, okay. I would yep. say. Um, particularly particularly for women, I would say that was the case where you weren't allowed to go out at night. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and it was a phenomenon, really, and it, an underground movement which started in the early 80s. And it was about, well, we're, we're establishing ourselves. We're sort of we're British, we're Asian, but there's nowhere really for us to go and hear the music that we want to hear, but we don't want to listen to the music of our parents because it's very traditional and it's folk music uh, from the Punjab. And what's for us? And then it, this this is when the emergence of kind of the fusion and the sounds of different, like westernised Western instruments like the guitar and the drums and things like that started with um, music that you could dance to. Mm. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, let's take over these. Well, I think it might have happened in halls to begin with. And then it was like, let's take over clubs during the day. And of course, the club owners were very happy because they were getting money at night, money in the day. So everyone's a winner. And um, it was very lucrative for those promoters who who started organising these daytime shows, which would usually happen. On a Wednesday afternoon at midday till six o'clock in the evening, 
uh, and or they would happen on a Friday afternoon uh, at the same time, midday to about five, six o'clock. And it would just be a place where everyone would go. People would hire out coaches, come from different parts of the country and um, turn up. And yeah, it would just be all lots and lots of young Asian kids getting together and having a good time in a nightclub during the day, all dressed up. I love the idea of that. And it's so different. Can I ask, was there alcohol on sale? Yes, there was alcohol on sale. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's so interesting. Uh, but that but said, that, it probably that, encouraged you all to bunk school and go to it, didn't it? <laughs> well, I remember this once. Um, Mrs. We would all make a couple of excuses about where we were going. It was like, okay, you're going to have the doctor's appointment. I'm going to go to the opticians. I'm going to say I'm sick. When then we were all sort of like having this mini conference about mm. all of our excuses as friends. Um, and then... I think it was towards the end of term in the fifth form where nearly all the Asian kids were just off. You you couldn't see where they were. And the one or two that were left, they ended up grassing us up and saying, oh, they've all gone to a daytime disco and -and so-and-so. And then we all got put on report. But it was uh, Mrs. Galloway who said, oh, there must be an Asian festival on because all the Asian kids are up. And it wasn't <laughs> a festival. It was a daytime party. Um, and, yeah, it was uh, it was one of those things where it was a special moment in time, in a way. And in those very early days, I mean, I know this from speaking to my relatives who are a bit older than me, who caught the early part of uh, the daytime discos, said that actually it was also, there were a number of factors being British Asian, but living in a household that's very conservative and traditional and you're not allowed out, you also, as a, as a male, you're also looking at the race issue. So there were in the National Front and there was a lot of race issues mm. in the 1980s. And so for them, for men, it was, they felt safer going to an environment where, there were all Asian people there and there wasn't the fear of being attacked. Yeah. Yeah. Or on the so way home. Are, I, I, yeah, yeah. 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 No, anything could have happened and, and things did happen. So I think um, it's a very interesting subject to explore and I probably will explore it in a, a lot more depth at some point. Um, but certainly I feel that the female narrative of that story of the daytimers is missing and the reason why I say that is because it was actually, even though it was happening in the daytime and, and people bumped off college or school or university to go, uh, if your parents found out or extended family found out you were going, they were serious and there could be serious consequences for those women. And, I mean, I know of friends uh, and uh, who, who were taken off to India and married off or they were married wow. off very, very, very young because it was like, oh, we don't know what could be happening here and we don't want her to end up disgracing the family, so we'll just get her married off really quick and that will be that. Um, and then there were tensions that were rising in the community whereby the elders started to realise that these parties were going on and they, and they were very, very, very frowned upon um, to the point where <clears throat> I remember an incident of some elders that went and stood outside a, a nightclub and they actually took names of people who they recognised 
and then they read that list out on the Sunday service and oh my said, God. these are the kids who have been and their parents need to sort this out. So it, it could have been quite damaging for some people, mm. it probably was. Um, and that's, and even now, and I've got pictures of me with some friends and we're on our way, we're at the bus stop, we're just waiting for the bus to get on and go to, to a daytime or something. And then I've got friends and I said, can I use this picture? This is what the project's, this is the project I'm making. They're like, you can use it, but can you blur my face out? Still. So, yeah, so there are people who still don't really want to be, and these, you know, these women are the same age as me, they're in their 40s now, so to be able to get to this point and still feel a sense of shame if their family found out that they were doing this in their youth, I think is a really interesting and, and quite sad uh, observation, really. Oh, 100% agree. Yes, do something more on that because that will be mm. fascinating and we'll have you back on to speak some more about that. This has been excellent. If only I have more time to talk to you, Jawinda. As a reminder, Jambo Cinema opens at the Mailbox in Birmingham on the 28th of July. Please come to Cambridge at some point. Oh, I will. I will, definitely. Thank you great. so much. Oh, it's been you're... great talking to you. Yeah, and you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Amy Farrow, member of the Team England Lawn Bowls team. Hello, Amy. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited to be talking to you in the run-up to the 2022 Commonwealth Games, which start in Birmingham on July the 28th. So that's tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. Lawn Bowls. It's one of the perhaps... Not necessarily like one of the first sports that springs to mind when you think about things like the Commonwealth Games. Probably a lot of people will be thinking about the athletics, possibly netball, where we've you know maybe had a bit of success in the past. But of course, we have had a lot of success in the past in the lawn bowls, and I'll come on to that in a minute. But Amy, could you, first of all, for anyone who is not familiar with the sport, can you explain to me a little bit what the game of lawn bowls is and how it is played in in the Commonwealth Games. Okay, so the concept is actually quite simple, although I think us bowlers make it a lot more difficult. You play on grass or you can play indoors on carpet or you can play on an artificial surface. You roll the white ball, which is called the jack, down uh, we, we call the rink, and you have to get your bowls by rolling them closer than the opposition. And you play in a, in a number of different formats, don't you? Because you've told me earlier that you're going to be competing in the singles and the pairs. So the women's squad is made up of five ladies and those five ladies in the first half of the competition, uh, one will play singles, which is myself, and the other four girls will be playing in the fours. And then we switch round and we play uh, pairs and triples. So I'm playing in the pairs with Sophie Tolshard from Devon. And you are the skip, is that right? I am the skip, yes, yes. So does that mean like the, the captain, the person who does like the strategy kind of stuff? Is that like Eve Muirhead in the, in the curling? Yeah, kind of. I think traditionally that's how it's seen, but it's it's a lot more of a team involvement for tactics, etc. The skip is basically the person who goes last. 
I want to talk, first of all, a little bit about, because Bowles has got a bit of a reputation as being a quote-unquote old person's sport. But Amy, you are not old, and neither are many of your teammates. So obviously that is not necessarily true. Would you say that there are more young people playing the sport than perhaps the, the sort of common perception? Absolutely. I think, well, I'm... 43 I think I've worked that out right I'm 43 I'm the oldest member of the women's squad um you know and we've we've got people in the squad that are in their 20s their 30s obviously myself in the 40s but I think there is a massive misconception that bowls is only for old people bowls is actually for everybody and you know um at in sort of the wider England squad, we have all ages playing. We we have teenagers playing in the in the full squad. We have people that are seventy that also play. You know, it is really an accessible sport for everybody and for everybody to perform at, at the highest level as well. So yeah, I do think there's a few misconceptions, and I think if people do try and catch it on TV, you know, people will realise that it's not just for old people. Because you've been playing at elite level for quite a long time now. You've been in three Commonwealth Games before and you have medalled in all three of those. You've got two bronze and a gold. Your first bronze was 2002 and then most recently gold in 2010. How did you get into bowls in the first place? Like, What made you think like, oh yeah, that's the sport for me. I will never go at that. Because you're a PE teacher as well, right? So you obviously, like, you're, you're pretty sporty. So you, you must have, like, tried your hand at, at any number of sports. Absolutely. And, you know, I started playing when I was nine and I played everything. At school, I played everything. Netball, hockey, athletics. I would do what, whatever. As long as it was sport, I would do whatever. And my parents, they actually used to own a pub. And it was when, it was when pubs used to close for an hour or two hours and they were they're very sporty themselves and they would go and play badminton they'll go and play squash but the time got got closer and closer they, they couldn't sort of fit that in so they went and played bowls and for me I didn't fancy sat there watching and they were making it look like it was really hard work and I thought oh, this has got to be easier than they're making it look so I, I went and gave it a go and it's it's one of those activities like most sports to be fair it's very addictive because you can you can bowl really well with one bowl and then the other one can be absolutely horrendous and you're thinking I can do better than that I'm going back to this you know and it, it gets you hooked it really does so yeah I'm I watch lots of sport I take part in lots of sport but bowls is the one that you know I've kind of progressed in uh, I think I've been very lucky in the fact that entering competitions and moving through that I've had opportunities to play for county opportunities to play for England, represent England at the Commonwealth Games and, and all of those things have, have just have happened in bowls really. Your last Commonwealth Games was in 2010. Did you take a bit of time out and, and, and what made you return to the sport? Delhi was 2010 and uh, in 2013, 2013, I had my little boy. He's not so little anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's eight, Harry. And, you know, 2014 was uh, Glasgow Commonwealth Games. And it just, the timing was not right. It wasn't right for me personally to be able to put my hat in for selection at that point. And, you know, 
Fortunately enough, I was asked again, would I be available for selection? And this this time was was sort of the right time. He's old enough to to appreciate, you know, me not being here quite so often. My husband, Ben, is really supportive. And my mum and dad, you know, are great for helping out with childcare, etc. And he actually loves going to see my mum and dad and Ben's mum and dad, I think a little bit more than same with me, actually. But um, <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. No, but he, I don't worry, you know, I don't worry as much. But when he was a lot younger, I didn't, the time just wasn't right. Do you think that the world of sport, and I don't mean bowls specifically, do you think that it has done enough to support mothers who are athletes? And do you think that situation is improving at all? I don't know how other sports work but I do know that it is difficult to to juggle the time as a parent you know it's difficult to to be able to put that time in working full-time as well Mm. you make lots of sacrifices and it's it's knowing how comfortable you are with with some of those sacrifices I don't I think sport is getting better I think sport is getting a lot better and I think it's more than just the logistics it's the feelings that you have and you know I hear a lot a lot of time and I use it myself this mum guilt whatever it might be when you know when you're at work and you can't you can't pick your your son or your daughter up from school you might miss a school play things like that you feel mum guilt all the time and I think sport is probably getting better but it's very difficult to know how it can improve logistically as as much as anything else and you know I've been watching the the athletics the world athletics that's been going on and Mm. Shelley Ann Fraser Price Jamaica you know she had a very short break to have her her child and she's come back and, and won gold again and she's a great inspiration it can happen and it can work but it is very difficult it's your your mindset and and how you can cope with that yourself you know, I mean, this was not the case 20 years ago or or even 10 years ago. The England women's team, I mean, I mean, like the football team, I don't think there are any mothers on that squad now, but there were 10 years ago and, and there wasn't adequate support for them and there wasn't adequate financial re- remuneration for what they did either. And that situation has changed a lot. It's, you know, it's progressed a lot. They get paid more now for a start, which obviously makes a big difference. And, and they are professional athletes now. Whereas for a lot of people in other different sports that people see represented at the Commonwealth Games, for example, you are juggling loads of stuff. You're juggling a full-time job. This is your side hustle, really, isn't it? Absolutely. So I'm a teacher and this afternoon I've been sort of on duty and some of the students, because we're doing, you know, sort of information about Commonwealth Games and, and some of the students have sort of said, oh, miss, good luck. And do you get paid lots of money? And I, I said, no, this is, this is a hobby. You know, bowls is a hobby. I get paid to be here for you. But I, I, I think, you know, if the sports and some sports are e- easier to commercialise, I guess, you're going to get more money. So more opportunities possibly but the majority of sports you don't you just don't get that you just don't get that at all so it is um you're just having to juggle everything let's talk about the commonwealth games specifically for a minute because england have been incredibly successful in the sport of lawn bowls at the commonwealth games we have won a massive 51 medals at the commonwealth games in lawn bowls including 20 gold so no pressure right yeah no pressure (laughs) 
What do you think our chances are this year? Do you, who, who would you say are our main competitors? I think England have got a great chance. I mean, we're playing at Leamington Spa, which is basically the home of, of English bowls. You know, it is the Wimbledon of bowls kind of thing. So, you know, we have got a great chance, but there are some fantastic countries and some fantastic opposition. You know, we've got teams, we've got Malaysia that have been here for over a month already. Australia have been here for, for a long period of time. So wow. fierce competition, fierce competition. But at the end of the day, we're going there for medals. Does it feel daunting to you to return after quite a lengthy period of time away? It did initially in the selection process. So we've been going through this process of selection for probably 18 months, two years now. And at first, I didn't know what to expect. You know, it's been a long time coming back into the fold. And I didn't know if I was still able to do that and still able to go through those processes. And I think people don't realise the the weekends away and it's not just on the bowl screen, it's the downtime. And I was thinking, am I going to miss Harry too much you know is my mind going to be elsewhere but the setup has been really good really professional John McGuinness and Mo Moncton and Kirk Smith everybody who's put put us together as a squad and for selection you know they've done a great job getting to to the team and and made me feel really really welcome as well and all the other squad members have made me feel really welcome and I know lots of them very well so yeah I'm, I'm really excited really excited and what are you most excited for about the Commonwealth Games? Being part of the multi-sport event, this is our time to to actually get rid of those misconceptions as well about what bowls is. We ideally would want people to see bowls as something that they can do and anybody can do it and give it a go. So there's that, there's that sort of showcase idea that I'm really excited about, but also being part of the multi-sport event, being on a level playing field with netball, with athletics, with swimming. It's the only time that we get that. We're not an Olympic sport. So for me, as a sports person as well, and somebody who's really interested in sport, being in the company of other sports people is, is just fantastic. It's an experience that I will never get anywhere else. I wonder if you have a perspective on this as a PE teacher, sort of related to what you said just there about how this is an opportunity to showcase bowls as a sport. I think, and, and this is based on my own experience in PE lessons, which is going back some time, Amy, I'm, I'm 39 now, so we are talking like a solid 25 years ago. So I like to think that the game has changed a little bit in that time in terms of PE lessons, but, but you can confirm. Our media is so saturated by Premier League football that I think we don't see a lot of other sports that exist and my view is that we have certainly people of my generation were fed really quite a a limited diet in terms of what they could do at school and a, a pretty limited diet in terms of what they could watch on tv and certainly for for women you know women's sports has just exponentially risen in the last few even like three years i would say my theory is that there is a sport for everyone no matter who they may be no matter what their physical ability no no matter what there is something that you could try and enjoy you just might not know about it yet because it hasn't been 
put in front of you. Do you think that's a fair reflection? Absolutely. And with my sort of PE teachers head on, we aim and all PE teachers and and not, not that there was anything wrong with PE lessons 20, 30 years ago. You know, there was nothing wrong with those lessons. But I think PE itself and, and teachers have grown in the fact that we're aiming to offer opportunities. And the idea that the, the nation understands health and fitness and well-being is massively in our favour because my school, personally, for year seven, eight, nine, we do nine different activities wow. each academic year. And the aim is that some students will be able to hook on to something, you know, mm. and there'll be kind of like a um, a link to some sort of community club in the hope that they will take that on and have some kind of involvement. I mean, we still will have this incredible drop-off post-16, but we're aiming for that not to be the case or not as much, but also to to develop confidence for young people to go to a sports club because they've done it in PE, they've experienced it in PE, and have the confidence as a young adult or as an adult to to go and take that sport up or to give it a go. There's nothing greater for us than seeing ex-students or our current students out and about playing or taking part in sport or going for a run or whatever it might be because you know that something has has hit home and it's been good and it's been okay and we've made that made that sort of positive environment but yeah there is something for everybody there's definitely something for everybody I mean that is such a good point that you've made there because it's all well and good you know going and trying, I don't know, kayaking or sailing or something on an activities week with school and being like, oh, that's great. But if you don't live by the sea or you don't live near a river or you don't have a club near you, you're not going to be able to maintain that relationship, I guess. So so it's really important to try and put things in front of people that they can realistically continue with. Yeah, absolutely. And our school sports partnership aims to promote those community links so we might do a rugby festival for instance boys and girls and the the two rugby clubs local rugby clubs will be there so it's familiar faces and it will be hosted at those rugby clubs so they've already been to to the ground they've developed that awareness and that confidence to be able to go back again the commonwealth games get underway in birmingham as i said on the 28th of july when is your first event well my first event is the 29th of july so i'm starting off with the singles we know the uh, group that we're in but we haven't got the actual games and who we play when but the 29th of july will be my first game so yeah i'm really looking forward to it and we'll be able to watch that. I presume coverage will be on the BBC. I believe so. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm hoping that there'll be red button if if it's not on the actual BBC as well. So where can we follow on Twitter how you guys are doing in the in the England Bowls team? So if you go onto the Bowls England Facebook page or Twitter page, um, you will be able to follow all the action there. I know for a fact that will be uh, updated very regularly. So please, if you can, that'd be great to follow us. And the Bowls England Twitter account is at Bowls England. Keep it as simple, lovely stuff. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute delight talking to you and I wish you all the best for the Commonwealth Games. Thank you very much.
Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, tell us about the time Kiefer Sutherland got put in charge of Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yes. This week, we were back in 1987 to watch The Lost Boys, which is equal parts horror film, teen romance and daft comedy, directed by Joel Schumacher. Its cast includes 80s teen flick staples Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Patrick, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, as well as future Bill, Alex Winter and Diane Weist, who had just won an Oscar for Hannah and Her Sisters. Oh, yes, people, this is the year that everybody started asking me where my sisters were. So funny. (laughs) The film's name is, of course, a reference to Peter Pan. And according to the writers, the gang was initially supposed to be made up of younger teens. Changing the ages of the Lost Boys was both the best and worst decision this film made. But more on that (laughs) later. The film was a critical and commercial success, grossing more than $32 million against a production budget of just $8.5 million, although that's just the domestic figure, so I'm guessing it was a lot more than that globally. It spawned a franchise with two sequels, Lost Boys The Tribe and Lost Boys The Thirst, and two comic book series. Anyone? No, me neither. (laughs) No. (laughs) According to Mythographer, because of course that's a thing, a Asbjorn Jean, because of course he's Scandinavian, the Lost Boys help shift popular culture depiction of vampires, making them younger and sexier. It also inspired vampire films that followed, including the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which of course spawned two TV series, which makes it pretty influential, even if its law seems a bit askew at times. Can vampires be killed by an old stereo stacking system? Discuss. <laughs> As for more standard critics, Roger Ebert gave the film 2.5 out of 4. How have we never talked about how weird his scoring system is before now? But ultimately, (laughs) he called it a triumph of style over substance. Variety said it was, quote, a horrifically dreadful vampire teensploitation entry that daringly advances the theory that all those missing children pictured on garbage bags and milk cartons are actually the victims of blood-sucking bikers, which manages to be a good point and totally wrong at the same time. Can I ask something tangential? Yeah. Did you say that the missing kids' photos were put on garbage yeah, bags? Yeah, I know. I just read that That's literally as it came really out of my dodgy. mouth. I thought that seems quite, <laughs> like, offensive. But it's anyway. Dark. Also, who looks at garbage bags? Like... Do you, like, you don't look at them to be like, well, maybe that's because there's nothing on them. But it's, it's a weird concept, isn't it? Mm. I just suddenly had a horrible thought about how if you actually wanted people to look at them, you should probably put them on toilet paper. But anyway, <laughs> meanwhile... <laughs> You've made it worse! <laughs> meanwhile, feminist writer Elaine Showalter said the film brilliantly portrays vampirism as a metaphor for the kind of mythic male bonding that resists growing up, commitment and especially marriage. But before we get to my views on what The Lost Boys is really about, here's some of the plot. After a bad divorce, Lucy Emerson, that's Weist, she's a perma-mum, isn't she, Weist? She moves with her two sons to live with her dad in Santa Clara, a California seaside town with a murder rate higher than the villages of Midsummer. Older son, (laughs) Michael, played by Jason Patrick, falls in with what turns out to be a gang of vampires dressed as the Scorpions. (laughs) Ah, the winds of change. <laughs> and led by Sutherland's David. They hang around, quite literally, testing their upper body strength and, just, <laughs> and using Michael's name every third word. 
<laughs> I've literally written, can we talk about how 40% of the dialogue is just the name Michael? <laughs> Apparently it's said a hundred times in this film. That's more than one a minute. <laughs> he puts up with it because he wants to bone star Jamie Gertz, who's about as authentic as a bad girl as Olivia Newton-John in The Last Bit of Grease. <laughs> and since she's not a real vampire yet, hangs around in the cave doing all the tidying and shit when they get to go out on the kill. Mm-hmm. Michael's younger brother, meanwhile, Sam, who's played by Corey Hayne, makes friends of his own, the Frog Brothers, who work in a comic book shop and talk about hunting vampires on the side. It all builds to a dramatic finale in which good triumphs over evil, the dog turns out to be pretty tasty in a fight, and shit me, Grandpa turns out to be some sort of Van Helsing. The end. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 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 I don't know if either of you Googled this, but I immediately Googled... Why do people like the Lost Boys? <laughs> I, I didn't Google that, but it's a thought that did definitely cross my mind. <laughs> so what I reckon it's about is it's all summed up in that scene where Lucy rings Michael, 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 and, <laughs> and says, get up out of bed and play with your younger brother. He's bored, he's on his own. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is almost literally word for word what my mum used to ring me and say. What are you doing in bed at two o'clock in the afternoon? And I think that's what this film is about. I think America had like two massive preoccupations in the 80s. Mm. On a sort of cultural scale, it was the satanic panic. And on a governmental scale, it was the war on drugs. And I Mm. think vampirism is just a stand in for these things that are coming to get your kids, particularly drugs, because in in the sort of, oh, he's drunk blood, he's in it now way. And I actually think, I suppose, it's a relatively good period piece in that sense that you can look back at it and say, what was America scared of in the 80s? And you can see in The Lost Boys what it is. But other than that, I haven't got that much time for it. I mean, that's quite a lot deeper than I was expecting this conversation to go, (laughs) if I'm honest. I think it's a good theory. I think it's a very good theory. I think it's also a warning against the perils of wanting to be young forever. We all have to grow up at some Mm. point. Most of my observations are related to the the period and the, and the style when they're hanging upside down and uh, the four vampires and it's just just like the hair. There's just so much hair there. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they've got their little batty trotters and then their mad eighties hair. Yeah. If we're hair. talking about the stylistic thing, my favourite bit is when they go and see a band and the band is just like a, a man who's like wearing trousers on the bottom and just wearing oil on the top, like all of the oil. <laughs> and above him, it's just a sign that says live. Yes. So I know it's really lazy of me to just read out my notes, but I think you'll enjoy this one, which says, thrusting oiled up saxophone man. So shiny. Why is this happening? <laughs> oh, the 80s. <laughs> I was thinking, I wonder if, you know, because in, in some vampire lore, you kind of stuck wearing what you were wearing you know mo- mm. you know much like ghosts you you kind of stuck wearing what you were You're wearing not a ghost though you can wear like whatever you want you've got a solid body that's the whole point i'd just take it as an opportunity to really you know like enjoy the different styles of the different eras but sorry hannah i interrupted you but like in interview with a vampire she keeps turning back oh, and yeah. she keeps cutting her hair and it keeps growing back so i just thought if you mm-hmm. were going to become a vampire the 80s would be the worst time to be stuck 
just dressed like that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Your hair would always grow back into Alex Winter's mullet. Yeah, every time. <laughs> <laughs> it does not going to make you very inconspicuous it's not, from is the it? next that's decade, what I thought, That's how it? you should just hunt vampires, is just people in period clothing. It's a good plan. It's a good plan. Can I point out something that really annoyed me? The vampire phones it? are in the wrong place. Where are they? Aren't they? Yeah. They're like... They're second ones out rather yeah, than canines. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't pick up on that at all. Who would have thought that a film in which you could kill a vampire with a set of deer antlers would let a mistake like that pass by, Nikki? Who'd have thought? <laughs> I know. I actually think, right, that the special effects, the makeup and special effects, now clearly they're not brilliant, but we're in the 80s where a lot of CGI hadn't come into play yet. And they're not awful. They are by far not even on my list of things that are bad about this film. I didn't watch long. a lot of them because obviously it's quite gory in places. And fortunately, it's so obvious what's going to happen at any given point. I was able to swerve almost <laughs> all of the terrible things. I was just like, this is going to be bad. Uh, so I didn't see loads of the special effects. But one thing I did think about was that I think that they created the visual prototype for, like, the Buffy vampires. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, With Joss the... Whedon's actually said yeah. that that's where oh, he got the bike from, yeah. Bit of Billy Idol, bit of oh, yeah. in the Lost Boys. Not even that, I meant, like, the, the funny foreheads that they mm. have. And he said that as well. He's like, you, they go from being normal to monster, like, really quickly. And he thought that, and he said that was very useful. Yeah, like I said, apparently it is kind of influential. Oddly, I, I think it's lore from, and I don't watch a lot of vampire stuff, but it does seem to be all over the place. When they get all of the vampires and they find them all sleeping and they kill one of them, mm-hmm. why don't they just set it on fire? Because they're children and a bit stupid. Well, yeah. Because then we wouldn't have had the drama of them being chased around Grandpa's house and the stereo yeah. death yeah. and the exploding fire and Grandpa knowing all along there were vampires but without warning anyone because he's a grumpy old <laughs> cunt. All of that. Exactly. I love the exactly. hot guy, the, the hot vampire who just like doesn't do anything at all. He just goes... <laughs> <laughs> he he was actually a model in real life. No, he, looks, he looks like a model, to be fair. Like, that is the only point. And he is clearly not acting in this. And I think he's credited as being called Dwayne the Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. He's Little great. fact for you, Hannah, when you were, you were sort of talking about the influence. I, and because and I did genuinely Google, why do people like the Lost Boys? <laughs> this is coming from someone who owns it on DVD, guys. You know, clearly she's grown up a bit. BuzzFeed, in its list of best vampire films ever, where do you think it's got The Lost Boys? Out of how many? 36. It's got to be in the top 10, right? Yeah, I would say it's probably about number 8. It's number 1. No. Uh-huh. I, mean, I was going to guess that, but I thought you wouldn't have asked the question. If... So, well, all right, if we're going to rank them, what's, what's your top well, Can I just ask, Mickey, how many times have you seen it before now, then? And when was the last time you saw it? Probably about four times and probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, I would say that's probably the same with me. I prob- No, actually, I probably just saw it a lot of times intensely when I was about 14, 15, 16. I probably haven't seen it, it in at least It was sleepover DVD, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Like a sleepover DVD. Yeah. 
That I would not watch even them behind DVD. someone's chair. VHS. I, I have a feeling yeah, that there was a period of time, probably about the time that he liked Guns N' Roses, I feel that there was a time when my brother quite liked Michael, quite liked this. <laughs> <laughs> Is it because it just felt really validating yeah. for him? Michael, 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 Michael. Michael, Michael. Um, <laughs> but I have managed Michael. to not watch it once. <laughs> Uh, I've, yeah, I've never seen it before. I've managed to escape it, but I do Michael. sort of remember it vaguely being on in the background and me being like, no, I'm not going to watch this. It'll be scary kind of thing. Yeah. There's a brilliant line, by the way, because everyone's obsessed with Michael. And I read a, a review of it that was like, it really explores how like men make friends because uh, David really, really wants to be friends with Michael. I'm like, there's no exploration of anything, really. He just goes, hey, get on your bike, chase us. Brilliant. This is my den. Drink my blood. You're one of us now, Michael, 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 Michael. Hey, Michael. There's a bit where Star says to him, I tried to warn you. And I yeah, show him, didn't. no, you fucking didn't. Yeah. Yeah. You like, exactly. actively drew him into the group, you bellend. What are you talking about? <laughs> She is flimsy as a character, isn't she? Oh, Very yes. flimsy. I would just like to touch on Kiefer Sutherland, if we could, because... We'd I all like fucking... to touch on Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> I fucking hate him. I really hate him. I hate him in Stand By Me. I hate him in this, because what he... Basically, those fucking vampires are like... You know the, the West Side Story and the Jets? The infinitely better Jets song, right? Where they're doing their... Like, and they're like prancing around you're like there's no way you're bad like you're fucking dancing around you're clicking your fingers i'm not scared of you frankly right that's what these pricks are like but less scary than the dudes clicking their fingers like they're just they're just bell ends they're just like shit bu- shit 80s bullies from school i mean they do kill yeah. an awful lot of people yeah hannah's got a point there <laughs> well made they're not scary i'd like i, I, I they're just them quite scary they're just I I just fucking hate him. I think he's... Oh, I hate him. I did have a Keitha Sutherland question, actually. So, obviously, big Blackadder fans in the room. And in Blackadder Goes Forth, it is within the Blackadder history that Tim McKinnery came away with an actual twitch because he did it so much as Darling. And I wondered if Keitha Sutherland came away with, like, smirk face. Because <laughs> he, like, this smirking. He just smirks I mean, all the way through this film. Okay, in answer to your question, Jen, I wouldn't say The Lost Boys was the best vampire film. I mean, I can, I don't really have a favourite vampire film, but I would say that... It's Twilight, uh, isn't it, Hannah? No, but I would say that Bram Stoker's Dracula is better than this, even though mm. it's a bit mad. I do love Gary Oldman. Only Lovers Left Alive. Yeah, that is, is really good, yeah. 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 And also the Catherine Bigelow one with uh, Bill... Oh, Near Dark. Near Dark, yeah. That's excellent, yeah. What's the Swedish one? Oh, Let, oh, the let right the Right One In. in. Also excellent. great, yeah. Yeah. So BuzzFeed, if you're listening, fuck off. <laughs> I, do you know what? This is a fucking bold claim to make as well, but I actually think the first Twilight film is better than this one. None of the sequels, but the first one isn't bad, and it's better than The Lost Boys. There, I've said it. I'd rather watch uh, Alexander Skarsgård in True Blood, if I'm honest with you. I don't need them to be sparkly. That's fine. No one, no needs, one needs them to, them to be sparkly. Corey Haim I really like in this. And while I don't think he was an incredible actor, what I do like is he reminds me of Woody Harlson. He just has little facial expressions that really make me think of Woody Harlson. So I very much warm to him. And also he's wearing some of the most batshit clothing I've seen mm. since the actual 80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the, the Coreys are like probably the best things about the film and the other frog brother alan alan frog i have a fun fact about that and i can't remember what it was jenny colgan who's been on our podcast she wrote a book 
that's called something like Searching for Andrew McCarthy. And in it, the Frog Brothers appear as characters and they're now detectives in LA. That figures. Mm. Yeah. I would put money on them doing that. Comic book storefront. Mm. And then like PIs. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, that's not what happened in the sequel, though, is it? No, I don't think so. Brief mention of the female characters. We've kind of done them. They don't really do much, do they? Star is a stay-at-home vampire and looks after, <laughs> looks after the baby vampire. But she's got two R's in her name, Hannah. She's really interesting. Yeah, she's very interesting. <laughs> and, I mean, Diane Weist is... Is it Weist? Weist? I never know. Um, yeah, I mean, she's good, but... It was an odd choice, I think. She's not given much to do. No. Apparently, uh, Schumacher desperately wanted her to play the mum because she just won an Oscar and he thought, that's what my film needs. And didn't think she'd say yes and was really chuffed when she did. Ditto Ed Herman as Max. Gentle blockbusters runner by day, yeah. evil vampire head by night who just wants a mama for his boys. Sorry, spoiler everyone, in case anyone hasn't watched The Lost Boys. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that is a big job, even if they weren't vampires. That would have been a big task to take on. I have this unruly gang of lads that like you to look after them for me. Thanks. Yeah. Some of them are old. clearly in their mid-twenties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so terrible. I was actually disappointed because it's so terrible. It doesn't even have the good grace to be funny, to be so bad that it made me laugh. It was just boring and I was sad about it. Yeah, well, I wasn't sad about it, but... You don't own it on DVD, Hannah. <laughs> I have to have some, like, harsh words with myself. There was, like, an air of nostalgic, oh, I remember watching this. God, young me knew nothing. <laughs> Maybe that's it. It did make me look up when Parenthood was out. Because I was like, oh, we can do that is a great Parenthood's fucking amazing. Also, Diane Weist. Yeah. Um, but, sadly, it's not... Not for a few more years, guys, so we <laughs> don't even have that to look forward to. It did make me Google when Young Guns was out as ah, well. Bon Jovi soundtrack, <laughs> hello. Actually, I think that's Young Guns too. Okay, so for the sake <laughs> of just tying up nicely with a bow, dated, Jen. It's a big, big old dated for me. Mickey. Where do you think that saxophone man is now? Is he still greased up? I think he's probably helping his neighbour put up a fence. Oh, it's going to slip. It's going to struggle. <laughs> Post everywhere. Won't need to buy any Ron seal, will he? So that's good. <laughs> Dated. What's next? Jen's next. So I've picked one and now I've suddenly thought, you might have done this in flicking. Have you done the full Monty in flicking? No. no. Wait a minute, Jen, whose favourite film did you think that was? Mine or Hannah's? <laughs> I don't know. I just had a feeling that it, we'd had it on the podcast before. Da, 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 da. Next time, we're going to be watching The Full Monty. And Hannah, you can leave your hat on. <laughs> I was going to ask I'm going to wear a hat. hat. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.